Good evening. Good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining us tonight. Wonderful to see uh, so many who came last week and some new faces as well. And thanks for being here on this Sunday night. Uh, we are so excited to continue. This is session two out of three of God's biographers reading the Gospels as historical witness. Our, uh, our lecturer for the next, uh, over the three weeks, is Rick Watts. We're so thankful for he and Katie and their involvement in the life of our church. And last week was great. And, and if you missed it, you'll be able to catch a podcast uh, that'll come out in a couple weeks. Uh, but we had a wonderful time to hear Rick teach for a while, and we took a break. And then we uh, had a Q&A. And we'll do the same tonight. So, uh, Ricky, if we could just go to that other slide, just to remind us of the flow of the evening, for everyone who's wondering... Um, we'll hear from Rick till about 8 o'clock. We'll take a break for those of us that want to stretch our legs and do other things. And a Q&A from after that break all the way till 9 o'clock, and we'll try and be prompt. And tonight, the Grand Master of Questions himself, Ricky, is going to be throwing some questions towards Rick. So watch out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be Jeopardy style. It's going to be great. Um, if you want to ask a question, we really encourage it. We had a handful come in last week. We had a ton come in before the session started. Thanks for responding to those. But this is a great chance to ask questions. And there really are no silly questions. This is a place to do it. So you can uh, email me or you can text that number and we will get those questions available and ready for the time of Q&A. And, and no question is, is out of bounds. We'd love to, we'd love to hear all of them. Uh, and we'll use that in the Q&A time. Rick mentioned a few resources last week, and I want to hold up uh, a couple of them to you if you're not aware of them, and then I'm going to put them over there on that little stand that if you want to take a look uh, later. The first is a book by actually the person who taught Rick, which is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. So some of you know this book. If you don't know it, uh, every Christian, it's just great to have on your shelf, actually. It's just a great practical guide to picking up the scripture and reading it at home. So highly recommend that if you don't have that on your shelf and you want to start reading the scripture seriously, that is a really good, really good start. Uh, Rick also mentioned Tom Wright, who's a biblical scholar who punches in the same rate at Rick. And Tom has a wonderful uh, commentary set in the New Testament called the New Testament for Everyone. So this is Luke for Everyone. Not this Luke for Everyone, but this Luke for Everyone. And that's what one of the books looks like. So if you're picking up the New Testament and you want something to read alongside it, this is a really great option, and you can order that. And I'll put that up there again. You can take a look at it. And uh, Rick also mentioned some pretty massive tomes from Tom Wright. I think he said if you dropped one on your toe, you'd probably lose a toe. Um, this is a little more accessible. This is Tom Wright's The Challenge of Jesus, which gives you a great historical grounding of the Jewish Jesus, and highly recommend that. Uh, that's, a, that's a great read for anybody who's interested and, and accessible, but also really quite deep. So those are three resources that I'll leave over there. Rick will no doubt point to more, uh, but he himself is a great resource. And thank you again, Rick, for your time and energy, and we're looking forward to hearing what you have to share for us tonight. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for coming back, folks. Great to see you. I uh, hope you're all keeping well. No, this is planet Earth calling living waters. Are you still alive? So um, we're going to jump into stuff and get moving a bit tonight. And uh, I, I plan for the first session to pretty much take the first hour. So we'll be starting, finishing a little bit later, maybe 10 past 8, and then we'll take maybe a shorter break and have questions. Is that all right? But let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your great love for us. We do thank you that you are good to all and have compassion on all that you've made. We thank you, too, that you've not abandoned us to our rebellion, 
but you've come among us ultimately and finally in Jesus. And through him, we've been able to see you, touch you, hear you. And through his death and resurrection, we found ourselves reconciled to you. We have the gift of your Holy Spirit in the meantime and the sure and certain hope of the life of the world to come. So, Father, we just pray within this framework, you bless us tonight, give us wisdom, give these good people discernment and give me clarity, we pray, that Jesus might receive the reward that is duly his. In his strong name we ask it. Amen. Great. So, uh, welcome back. And we've got our first slide up here to God's Biographers. Uh, great title. Going to talk, I didn't think it. That was Luke's, by the way. Well, we'll see where that's heading as we move through the series. But uh, given that it's me, what I'd like to do is do a bit of a review. Is that okay? So this is my magic kind of, what do you call it? Should I weigh this? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll just stick with the notes, Rick. Well, uh, a couple of things, right? Um, why is it even important to do this? And I think for several reasons. First of all, the Gospels are the core of our convictions. Right? Being true really matters. And you should note, I tend to avoid the word faith because I think what that communicates in our culture is private, internalised stuff and with a sense of some kind of psychological weakness if you're a person of faith. I would never use that language about myself um, because that's not what we're dealing with, I don't think. We're dealing with stuff that was true that people saw and touched and handled. Okay? So you probably don't say when you're flying in an aircraft that I have faith in Boeing or something. I'm a Boeing person of faith. You just get in the plane because it works. So that's, I mean this because it's true, okay, if I can say that. Uh, and that also matters, I think, because we live in a world where people talk about my truth. I have no idea what that means. What is that? What is my truth? Um, normally truth is something that stands outside of you. It's not based on who I am. The Gospel's not about that, it's about public claims of what happened right? and because of that, the nature of reality. Now, what we talked about last week in this regard, and I was just chatting with some of the guys before, when I was going to university, one of the things I found myself falling into was trying to defend Jesus on the basis of his being reasonable. We started with this last time. Now, he's a wise teacher. What he says makes good sense. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you've ever done that. But it's worth thinking about what does that imply about the nature of truth? And the assumption is it's got to be reasonable to me. right? Uh, and my culture, that's the basis of truth. But let me ask you, where do you ever see that in the New Testament? Where do the Gospels ever do that? Where in the Gospels does it say that people believe Jesus because he was reasonable and it made sense to their culture? As we go through the Gospels, it's, it's anything but that that's going on. The reason people believe in Jesus, as we'll see, is because of his authority. Right? So it's not reason, it's his authority. It's unmatched. People are just staggered. And the gospel writers kind of run out of Greek words to express people's amazement at what goes on. Right? They just keep ramping up those words until they run out of dictionary alternatives. People are staggered and amazed by this. So um, it, it's really interesting as I thought about that. How much of my own life is based on what Jesus actually said or what seems reasonable? I had more experience of what was going on in Australia than here in Canada, but so many sermons back in my experience in Australia were based on what people thought was reasonable some kind of pop psychology self-help program. And really, that's going to give you eternal life? What are we doing? <laughs> um, 
It should be what Jesus is on about, I think. So that's why I think the Gospels are so important because that's where they're coming from. We don't believe in Jesus because it's reasonable. They are impressed by him because who else does this kind of thing? This is amazing. Right? So, um, you know, when you're five minutes away from your last breath on earth, you can believe in Justin or you can believe in Jesus. Take your pick. Right? And I'm not trying to take a shot at anyone. I'm just trying to make you realise what it really does mean to believe in Jesus. He sets the bar about what's true. Right? Not what we happen to think might necessarily be. Okay. Um, I also mentioned we're coming to this as historians. You might recall that. And what do you know about history? History is not about events. We might think that, 1066 and all that. It's not about events, it's about actions. Actions are what thoughtful people do. It's agency, to use that language. So as historians, it seems to me, our first job is to understand and not to criticise. Got to understand first. And that's really what we're going to be doing this session and the final session. We try to, we're going to try and understand what's going on. Why does Jesus say what he does according to these Gospels? And why does he do what he does? It's fundamental to human action, if you like. Now, one of the things about this is uh, this is not like natural science where you can repeat these experiments. You can't repeat history. You just can't because every event is unique really important to keep in mind. That's why when you're relating to people, you really can't work with a little taxonomy of, oh, you know, your number so-and-so. You can't do that, right? Every individual has their own history, their own setting, their own dynamic. And I love that about Paul. Paul never writes treatises. You notice that? Paul never wrote a theology of the church. I think he gets that because the reality is not the systematic thing. It's that local church in Rome or Ephesus or Corinth. And where does he get that from? Read the scriptures. That's exactly how God speaks to Israel. God doesn't do philosophy with Israel. He talks to individuals in their particular settings at their particular time. That's how he does it. That's who he engages with people. So I would say that's really what ought to characterise Christian communities. We're unique particular communities. The problems that we face are not the same ones that are being faced 25 miles down the road in the heart of Vancouver. We're doing different things. You can't just pick up a model from one place in Denver and plonk it over here because it worked in Denver. You can't do that, it seems to me. Right? And it's the same when we're talking about Jesus. You can't do that kind of scientific, systematic approach because you lose his particularity in that process. So if we don't have access to natural science, and historians don't try to do that anyway, what do we have? We can't repeat these events. Well, there are two things. We have sources, as you can see. Right? And those sources include not just the Gospels, but all the stuff we have that tells us about what people thought back then. So the books that Luke mentioned, you know, the challenge of Jesus. Part of that process is to bring to us what we now know about how people thought and acted in antiquity. And we really only know that because people wrote it down. You can't read people's minds. We don't have windows into other people's souls. Okay, so we're working on these sources that tell us how people, what people did, why they did it, and we have our common humanity. So in these sessions, we'll be looking at that, right? Our, we're going to be looking at what kind of sources there are that help us understand the Gospels on the basis of being commonly human. Okay, all right. This is just revision. I hope it's all sticking there. Uh, then we're going to talk about reliability. We did talk about reliability of these sources and how some people have said they're all, you know, you've heard that, you can't trust the Gospels are unreliable. 
And we went through that and said, actually, if you have a Greek New Testament in front of you, you can be 97 to 98% sure you're reading what was originally written. And you can't do that for any other document in antiquity. Remember we mentioned Plato? Our earliest copy of Plato is half a manuscript 1,300 years later. And yet our earliest fragment of the Gospel of John is 110 AD. Now, it's only a fragment, but within a couple of centuries, we've just got all kinds of manuscripts. So if people say they don't trust the Gospels because they think they're unreliable, then you have to throw out everything pretty much from antiquity. Well, no, no true scholar is going to do that, right? Um, so in terms of reliability, no problem. Okay? Uh, we also talked about reading the Gospels as wholes. And if you've had a bit of exposure to academic studies, what some scholars love to do is separate them into little bits and they look at each bit on its own. Uh, this, I'm not taking that approach. I think that's very bad history. We have to do with what we've got. And we don't have beads. We have four psychologically coherent narratives. That's what we're going to be looking at, OK? Rather than some imaginary fragments. So uh, what this means then is uh, we're dealing with what we actually have. You can have this conversation with people who don't even believe in God. That's the great thing about it. On the plane talking to an atheist, you can have this conversation. Because you're talking about four books that are actually there. And we're going to look at those and say, OK, how do we explain them coming about? Right? So you don't even have to believe in Jesus to do this. Uh, which, if you think about it, is very much like the Gospels. People saw Jesus do what he did, whether they believed in him or not. Right? <laughs> he just did it in front of them. So uh, this is meant to be accessible to everyone. You don't have to be a believer to have access to this. Okay, it's a really good thing, I reckon. Well, uh, that leads us finally, and we're ready to launch into our new uh, topic tonight. What then are we dealing with? What are the Gospels? And the best analogy would be ancient Greco-Roman biographies. Remember Gunther Zuntz, we talked about him? The guy who was German classicist, hadn't really had much exposure to Christians. But uh, he looked at these things and said, oh, these are biographies, these are histories, even though unlike anything he'd ever seen. You got that? So that's really important. Uh, one of the implications is you can't, if people say, oh, I don't believe the Gospels, they're just fairy tales. No, they're not. We know what fairy tales look like. We know them from the Bronze Age. We know them from the Brothers Grimm. The Gospels are not fairy tales. They just don't look like that. They're the wrong genre. Okay? And the same with myth. All the Gospels are just myths. No, they're not. We know what myths look like. And nobody writes myths about living, uh, events in living memory. So you can't say, I don't believe the Gospels because they're myths. No, that's a genre mistake. Category error. Don't do that. And the same even with legends. And even the word gospel is critical here because gospel is not some faith term. It's a political term about actions that have changed the world in which you live. That's what that word means. So you've got to get your head around that one because sometimes, at least in my tradition, gospel is a privatised internal thing that's just Jesus and me. Now that's important. You need to know the Lord. But that's not what the word meant back then. Public events with consequences for the polis. The people are born witness to. Okay? So that's just to kind of help us get on the right footing as we come to these things. That's going to bring us now to our next section, ready to move on. Now, that was a real you know, rapid whistle-stop tour. But if you were here last week, you would have had that in more detail. Let's just refresh our memories. Okay? 
Uh, I'm not going to ask for questions at this point. We're just going to keep going. So I've got the Greek word up there, bioi. Uh, you've probably heard of biology, right? Biologos, systematic thinking about life. Well, bioi is the plural of bios, and it's the way you describe a biography. Right? Bioi means biographies in the Greek world. So now you've learned some Greek. You can go home and say, I know a little Greek. Runs a local fish and chip shop. No, uh, terrible joke. Now, as we come to these documents, just uh, keep in mind that they're not 21st century biographies. And this, again, is really critical, folks, because human beings, just the way we operate, when we try to make sense of stuff, the first place we start is with what we know. It's the first place we start, right? And what do we actually know? We know lots of 21st century Canadians. Was Jesus a 21st century Canadian? Emphatically, no. But if we're not careful, that's automatically what we'll assume when we're reading the Gospels. We're thinking, oh, this is not how I would behave. Well, sorry, um, who cares? You're not a first century Jew. <laughs> okay. right? And it's a really good thing, actually. It's a good practice because it stops us trying to make everyone fit what we think they should be. It's great pastoral discipline to do this kind of thing. It helps you listen to other people to know where they're coming from. So that's what we're doing now. We're going to listen. What does a first century biography look like? Well, for one thing, they are an awful lot shorter. No one writes 1,000 page biographies. No one does that. Does anyone read biographies here? You've seen those huge, massive tomes. These are not those. So what do they cover? And we're going to talk about those just now. Some of the, the common features. Now, they'll vary. Like, like any good piece of you know, creative work, even if you're doing history, you have different histories of Canada, different emphases, different interests, some of biographies. So there'll be some variations, of course, there will. But there's some common things. And the first one is this. They have a very short introduction. They don't spend a lot of time setting the scene. There might be something about the birth, the city of origins, and if it helps, a genealogy, where the person comes from. You don't always get that. Sometimes you will. You might get one or two anecdotes about them when they were a child, and only if that indicates something about the future significance of the individual. You get very little about their youth, and largely because the ancients are convinced that young people don't have much to say that's worth hearing. <laughs> uh, I thought we went to uni to realise how much we didn't know. And I'm kind of staggered to meet young undergrads who think they know everything. Like, have you been educated or what? <laughs> Just <laughs> what you're learning is how much you don't know and the kinds of questions you ought to be asking if you want to learn to do something, but they seem to be so convinced they've got it all sorted out. Uh, and I know because I teach, well, <laughs> enough of that one. Um, I mean, the view's quite simple, they're too young. They've insufficient experience. They haven't grown up yet. And, you know, I look back and I think, who in the world in their right mind would let me vote at 18? What the heck did I know? I was this sea of swarming hormones, living under mum and dad's roof, never had to work for myself, never had to raise a family, keep a serious job, and you're going to let me decide who's going to run the country? Are you nuts? Okay, but apparently, there you go. <laughs> well, the ancients didn't make that mistake. <laughs> now you know where I stand. Yeah, I wouldn't mind pushing up the age of voting, maybe to 27, something like that. Just, <laughs> probably get shot in the process, but, you know, hang on. <laughs> get a life first. Well, so, 
so I've woken you up, so that's good, even though I'm going to have to run after this. So um, the big focus is on the adult life, of course, because that's where they have their impact. You get their speeches, you might get their victories, their teaching, those kinds of things. Now, what might be surprising for us is the next point, you get a substantial amount on their death. Why do they do that? Because people can blow smoke until the cows come home, but the real measure of the man is how he dies. Right? There's something what, wonderfully focusing about an imminent death. Someone say that? I know it's a misquote somewhere, but how you deal with death, they understood that. That was the big one, and a lot of philosophy was training people how to deal with death. In fact, the first pagan author who ever gives Christians any credibility doesn't do it because of what we believe. He thinks we're just fools who believe, you know, nonsense. But he, what he could not deny was the way common people who were beneath his contempt were no longer afraid of death. That's what stunned him. Philosophy was all about learning the art of dying because that's where you're going to end up in the end, right? You're going to die. How are you going to deal with that? And here are these people, ignorant, untrained, who no longer fear death. That just staggered him. He had to give them credibility for that. Okay. Uh, so, interesting. The fourth point to notice is there's nothing about their internal thought life. Nobody does that in the first century. They don't think like that. So, you know, you read modern novels, a lot of stuff's played out in the head. Right? You'll never find that in these biographies. Uh, for them, what matters is not so much what you're thinking, but what you do and what you say. That's the stuff that really matters to them. They weren't really aware of psychology like we were, and even their worldview didn't really allow room for it. Uh, I don't think we really have any substantial work from the Greek world on human psychology. Uh, they don't even really consider that. And partly it's their philosophy that... Okay. Well, now, there are two basic kinds. You can see that, that's the second last point. Political figures and generals, and they're characterised by speeches. Politicians love to do that. <laughs> it's going to be really cheeky there, unless you're on skiing holiday somewhere. Um, <laughs> battles, uh, major events that they're involved in, and these things, they tend to be more chronological in outline because you get one event following another as a result of somebody's actions or speeches or something like that. Okay. Teachers and philosophers also get biographies, but there it's much more thematic. They tend to group their teaching according to themes and topics, and they're less strictly chronological. Okay? So the purpose in all of this then, what are they doing? Well, they, first of all, they want to preserve the memory and the teaching of the individual, usually as some kind of moral exemplar. That's a really big deal in antiquity. Uh, I think we've lost that in our universities. Uh, you couldn't really be a professor if your life didn't measure up for it. Now, professor's obviously a modern word, but there was meant to be coherence between what you taught and how you lived. But these days, you can have people teaching on you know, marriage whose marriages are a complete disaster and whose families are just, you know, we had this disconnect. You, you couldn't have that in the ancient world. Your life was meant to measure up the kind of stuff you were talking about. Okay. And that's partly what gave Augustine a bit of heartburn about King David, because King David turns out at times to be a bit of a dropkick. Do you understand that expression? It's not a compliment, right? Um, 
And so he tries to somehow get rid of that because he's convinced that, you know, if you're going to be a big figure like David, you need to model what it is you're talking about. Well, the only one who does that in the scriptures is Yahweh and Jesus. Everyone else has all kinds of flaws. And that's what's unique about Israel's scriptures, by the way. You don't find that in ancient literature, that same kind of unvarnished declaration of people just really messing it up. Moses is your big figure and he blows it at the end and doesn't make it into the promised land as a result. So they're not living with dreamlike hopes for their leaders. They understand that humans are flawed. The only one who's going to get through is Yahweh. Okay? But one of the reasons you write biographies is because you think this person should be some kind of moral exemplar. In fact, uh, when Augustus Caesar you know, sets up his res gestae, things done in Rome, it's all about him as the great Roman virtuous man. Now, all the things that I've done, he's meant to be, not, he's not meant to be just an example, he's trying to show that no one can ever be better than he was. There's another little thing at work there. But. So that's, that's critical, the moral exemplar bit. So an early attack on Jesus was that he was a magician and Jews and pagans both brought that charge against him. Now what's interesting about that is you don't call someone a magician unless they do stuff you can't explain. So even the fact that they regard him like this tells you that the people who are saying these things are well aware that Jesus has a reputation for doing extraordinary things. But one of the key responses by the early Christians is he's nothing like other magicians. He doesn't seek his own honour and glory. And of course in the ancient world that's what you're expected to do. Ambition is a virtue. The best deserve the most. So you're meant to be ambitious. You're meant to be someone who declares how great and wonderful you are. That's what you're meant to model in antiquity. They weren't sure about that with the magicians because they were dubious in the way they did it. But seeking your own glory and status was part of you know, the expectation and the early Christians who were defending Jesus say he wasn't like that. That's not what he's after. Right? And that's worth noticing. Why would you write a book about someone who didn't do that when everyone in antiquity, that's what you did? It's just one of those little things like, why would you do that? Unless maybe Jesus had been like this. And you should notice uh, for the Roman via, so the word for Roman man is via, that's where we get virtue from. So in the Roman world, virtue is what men have. Right? Elite males are virtuous. Sorry about that, women, but um, you know, the elite males are this kind of figure. And that list does not include humility or concern for, for the poor and ordinary folk. That's just not part of what virtue means for these guys. So in response to that attack, we're still talking about the moral exemplar, in response to the attacks on Jesus being a magician, I say, well, look at him, he's nothing like that. He's not running around looking for his own glory. And these magicians, they really only perform stuff for elite people, right? And yet Jesus is working amongst the folk that most people would regard as beneath contempt. Okay? Now, that's almost impossible for us to get our heads around today because in Canada, everyone has value. You need to know in antiquity, nobody believed that. Nobody believed that. The only people who mattered were the elite, maybe 300,000 in 50 million in the empire who were wealthy. The rest, junk. Now, it's very difficult to try and get your head into that space and to see how extraordinary Jesus was when he really focuses more on those people. And you'll see nothing in Jesus with incantations or spells or anything like that. So 
That's the moral exemplar. They're able to point to Jesus and say, look, his life is different. Now, here's the big one. Can they do that about us? Because if they can't, then you might want to think twice about calling yourself a Christian. That's just integral to the process, a different quality of life. Okay. Now, the second thing they would do is to win followers. Well, yep, they want people to believe in Jesus. We saw this. This is amazing stuff, right? But notice, it's, what are they pointing to? His extraordinary authority. That's the first thing they start with. His amazing power. What do you do with that? That says something about who he is to them. And then finally, to defend right, these um, figures in these biographies, to defend their person or their teaching against detractors. Okay. That's what ancient biographies do. Well, let's compare that to the Gospels. What do we find there? And we find the button. Good. So similarities. Well, a couple of things to notice here. How much do the Gospels have about Jesus' birth and early life? Mark and John have nothing. Fair enough. That doesn't surprise anyone. Only Matthew and Luke have stories of Jesus' birth. Okay? And then even then, it's not really about Jesus. It's about what Yahweh is doing and then what other adults are doing and saying. It's not really much about Jesus. I mean, he's more of a passive figure in all of this. Only Luke has one small anecdote where it says when he was 12 he was in the temple debating. That's the only kind of short little comment you have about Jesus. Now later on, inventive Christians try to make good that and come up with a whole bunch of other little stories about him, which actually has Jesus the terrible brat, right? He's making little birds out of clay to fly away and some kid comes and kicks down the wall of the little puddle he's made and Jesus strikes him dead or something and that's tells you something about the, the moral stance of the person writing these little stories of Jesus. You don't get much of that at all. Right? It's very similar to what you find in other ancient biographies. Well, who's Jesus? Clearly a teacher. Okay? So we're not surprised to find extended thematic um, blocks of his teaching. And Matthew's really good at that, but it's also there in Mark. Mark has blocks of teaching too, often missed, but the most well-known, of course, would be Matthew. You do find similar groupings in Luke and in John. That's standard for teachers. You find some basic chronology from Galilee to Jerusalem, but they're not trying to cover the whole thing. You can't do that in these very small documents. They don't fuss about much more detail than that. John has Jesus go to Jerusalem five, six times, which is probably more likely the case, given he's been around for three years and as a Jew you're meant to go regularly. But no one's getting upset about that because that's not what these ancient biographies are trying to do. They don't have a thousand pages. They've got some other things thereafter. What might surprise you is there's also political elements here. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, did you notice that Jesus wages war on Satan? Now, forgive me, I know for Canadians that's not a nice thing to do, so when we sing that wonderful song, Be There My Vision, why is it we always drop, Be There My Breastplate, My Sword for the Fight? Oh, that's because Christians don't, we're not involved in warfare, are we? <laughs> Have you not read Ephesians? Okay. Um, you might have talked about the story of, uh, you know, he's just told the sea what to do and then you get militarised porkers. Right. What's interesting is when Mark describes these pigs, he uses military language. He's describing these pigs 
in the way you describe the behavior of raw Roman military recruits. There's some very unusual Greek words, right? Like militarized porkers, okay? He's told the sea what to do, and immediately they drown in the same sea afterwards. Where have you seen that before? From the Exodus, exactly, right? And what the Red Sea is all about military conflict between Yahweh, the mighty warrior, and Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god. So that element's definitely there. What do you do with a triumphal entry into Jerusalem? That's what warriors do after they won great victories. Intriguing. Jesus' action in the temple, right? Who does that kind of stuff, if not great political leaders when they come into a city? That's, that's a standard pattern in the ancient world. And he's enthroned and offers sacrifice. And here it gets really interesting because his enthronement is on a cross and the sacrifice is himself. Whoa. You don't tend to find that in standard triumphs in antiquity. So these are exactly the kind of things that political figures and especially generals would do. And then we do notice, of course, there's a massive emphasis on Jesus' death. Massive, right? Unparalleled in any other literature. Thank you. Next slide. So, got that? Now, uh, of course, you can always come back and listen again. I know I'm going lickety split, but you just got some stuff to get through. And... Now, there are major dissimilarities. And that, that happens to be, here we go. There we go. Great, right? First of all, they are much longer than anything else from antiquity. Most biographies are quite a bit shorter than what you get in the Gospels. That's innovative. Whoa. Why do they have so much about that? And I think that might be partly related to its Jewish heritage. Uh, Jewish scriptures are not known for short books. Right? You do get some, some of the minor prophets, but the big stuff, right, that tends to go on. So there might be some of that. I don't think we can demonstrate that, but I think that would be one explanation. In terms of Jesus' origins, yep, you do hear something about his hometown. It gets mentioned, but much more about Scripture's prophecy. You tend to find that in Mark. Mark begins as is written in Isaiah. They're not too concerned about the town Jesus comes from. They really want you to understand his origins and it lies way back in the promises of Yahweh through the prophets. Even in Matthew, you get a combination of David and Abraham. Luke goes back to Adam, but Luke is also full of all these... Men and women. Women have tremendous prominence in Luke where they're offering these prophetic words about you know, what Jesus is doing. And actually, I think um, Elizabeth's song is a lot like Hannah in sec uh, 1 Samuel. So all those parallels. And, of course, with John, goes right back to Yahweh himself. Now, also, uh, while Jesus' birth is mentioned in only two Gospels, that's Luke and Matthew, all four relate Jesus to John the Baptist. And remember, they're writing in Greek. Think about that for a minute. For most of us, when we think about Jesus, we think Christmas, Nativity, and then we think Easter. How many of us start with John? And yet all four Gospel writers tell you, you won't get Jesus apart from John. They're not so concerned about nativity. They don't make a big deal about Christmas to the same degree. Isn't that interesting? What's that tell you? It tells me that there's no way of understanding Jesus apart from his Jewish heritage. You simply can't do that. 
and they're writing in Greek, obviously for people who may not know Aramaic. Right? It's the standard language that everyone's reading to all kinds of people. So I want to say at this point, what you're certainly not getting here is traditional Hellenistic philosophy or Platonic theology. And again, not to have a fight with anyone, but theology was actually invented by Plato. That the word comes from him. And it means the rational science of the divine. And you never find that word in, used in the New Testament of anyone. Neither Christians nor their enemies ever call what they're doing theology. And that's because what we're doing is not based on our rationality. What they're talking about is what they touched and saw and handled. It's a very different thing. Jesus' authority comes not from some philosophical proof, but from what he actually said and did. That's why people trust him. Hmm. So in this respect, right, so much is shaped by Israel's history. And that's how they see scripture, right? It's all talking about God's dealing with them as his people. Now, you'll also notice that there's no sense, it's going to be a little more provocative, of them trying to come up with a Roman theology for Romans or a Greek theology for Greeks or a Celtic theology so the Celts feel at home or an Egyptian theology so the Egyptians don't feel excluded. There's none of that. There's simply a recognition that this is what Yahweh did with Israel and that's what we're grafted into. You don't get a separate Australian theology. It's not how it works, right? And you're probably delighted about that because every community will be Vegemite on toast, right? <laughs> uh, well, no. So when you look at this stuff, they're written in Greek, but the text they're quoting over and over and over is scripture. I think there are some, if I get the numbers right, there's about 2,500 references to scripture in 1800 different places in the New Testament and compared to that maybe five that come from Greco-Roman literature. See what's going on there? This is a cultural confrontation. They're saying there's only one story that's true and this is one you have to live in, right? That there's no attempt to make it easy. There's no attempt to say we can do both those things together. No, it's God's way or the highway. That's all there is to it. It's confrontational. And it's no wonder they find themselves in trouble wherever they go because they're just saying that whole Hellenistic culture, sorry, not the way forward. Now that changes in the second and third century. We've got a lot more Hellenistic Christians and they're trying to find ways, oh, well, yeah, we can kind of bring this in. in the, but you don't see that in the New Testament anyway, I don't think. And it's not as if Jesus didn't know. He'd, Alexander had taken his guys through there 200 years before Jesus' birth, 250 years before Jesus, actually 330, sorry, over 300 they knew about this stuff, but that's not what worshipping Yahweh is about. Okay, so distinctly Jewish with all the emphasis on Israel's scriptures and there's no attempt to try and say we can take the best from both worlds. They're just not doing that. If you stop and think about that, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> if I think about what I do sometimes. Hmm. Well, the other thing that really is going to be part of the focus of our session is uh, Jesus does and says a great many things that really are odd, contrary to and even inexplicable in terms of ancient Jewish expectations, let alone Greco-Roman ones. And that's the thing. By the time you start piling this stuff, there are so many things that you wouldn't expect 
all focused on the one person. How could anyone invent stuff like this? It's, it makes no sense. Okay. Well, and then we also have four. No one else gets that many. No other figure in antiquity gets four biographies. No Jewish rabbi gets one. And why wouldn't the Jews do that? Well, what's the rabbi's big complaint about Jesus? Yeah, he's a nice kind of guy, but the problem is you're meant to point to Torah and Jesus points to himself. That's the real sticking point. Good rabbis point to Torah, Jesus points to himself. I think that's why you never get a biography about a rabbi. They never call disciples. When Jesus calls disciples, that is shocking and confrontational. You don't do that. See that? So just even in terms of Jesus' first century setting, just the sheer number, let alone in terms of the Greco-Roman world. So yes, there are similarities, but also very significant differences, as Gunther Zuntz mentioned. The history of biography, unlike any other, a superior being making his way through the troubled world of humans and demons, is how he summarised Mark. I think that's a pretty good description of the Gospels. Okay. Now, next one. Thank you. So, a few little kind of comments to tidy this up before we move on a bit further. We don't actually know when they were written. Uh, no one dated the books. Uh, there's no dates on the front cover printed in Leipzig, you know, 30 AD or something. None of that. For Mark or Matthew, Mark and Luke, even though Matthew comes at the front of our canon and because everyone, he's the gospel that everyone's buying in the second century. If you get Matthew, it's a really good deal. You get Mark plus a whole bunch of other stuff. And by the second century and third century, Mark's almost dropping out, right? It's just, Matthew really has become the dominant gospel. If you've got to buy one, you're going to buy Matthew, okay? It looks as though, however, Mark wrote first and then Matthew and Luke follow him. Right, so Mark writes and then Matthew picks up Mark and he adds a whole bunch of other stuff and then Luke apparently sees both of them and he works with both of them and then adds a whole bunch of his own stuff as well. And of course that makes sense. If you're going to write a gospel, um, you've got to have something different to say, right? So, uh, but it's interesting that they actually use Mark as their template. There must be something going on with Mark that makes it normative. For Matthew and Luke to follow, especially when you remember that Mark was not a disciple and Matthew might have been. Why would Matthew, a disciple, follow someone like Mark? And I think the short answer is Matthew himself tells you, the only gospel who does, what happens in that story when Jesus asks the question and Peter responds, you're the Messiah, son of God, and what does Jesus say? You are Peter and upon this rock. Matthew's the only one who has that. And I think what he's doing is he's recognising Peter's priority. And I think that's why he follows Mark, because behind Mark stands Peter. And then there's some other wonderful stuff we could say about that, but that's for another time. I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> okay. Uh, John, probably the latest, and it looks as though he's assuming people, at least some of his readers, know Mark. You can just see places in John where he says, you can, it's almost like, oh, you can get that from Mark, I won't tell you about that. So he seems to have some knowledge of Mark's gospel. Now, the dating then, well, the earliest fragment we have, I think I mentioned, was from John in 110 AD. So it makes it, that data alone makes it pretty much certain that the four gospels are written between mid to late first century. Got to be inside the first hundred years. It's just, it's, the evidence doesn't work any other way. Okay? Now, in terms of sizes, basically two sizes, 
large and small, right? Even less choice than at Starbucks, okay? It's a, you want grande or whatever the other one is, okay? Uh, so Mark uses the smaller scroll and then Matthew, Luke, sorry, Matthew and Luke and John, they use the larger one. So there's Mark and then there's bing, bing, they're much bigger. It's partly to do with adding all the extra stuff that they do. Now, even so, you have to realise with all of these, they are being incredibly selective. And John tells you this at the end of his gospel. And you only have to stop and think about it for a moment to realise that's the case. You know, Jesus has been ministering for three years and you can read the Gospel of Mark in under two hours. Really? I, do you think you're getting everything? Not on your life, right? But no one did that in writing ancient biographies. They never expected to do that. So, so I don't mean to shock you, but the fact of the matter is we probably only know a fraction of the stuff that Jesus did. Now, we've got the stuff we need. I mean, this is certainly enough to get on with, Right? <laughs> right? Uh, would you like more? I didn't have enough trouble living the Christian life based on what I've got without a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, this is fine, okay. Uh, no one's writing thousand-page biographies. They're not doing that. They are being selective, and that's standard. So you have to be aware of that. What's governing their selection when you're reading a gospel? What themes are at work? What do they want to tell you about? Uh, and so it's one of the reasons you know, when we teach how to do this to our students, we emphasise a lot. You've got to pay attention to the literary structure. You've got to think about context. Why these texts are in this order. They didn't just happen that way. There's a deliberate structure at work. They're being selective about what they put in. Why do they put this here and not somewhere else? You just, that's what you work with when you're dealing with ancient biographies. Well, who were the authors? Uh, well, nothing in the text tells us, actually. Now, I know in your published text it has the Gospel according to Matthew, but that's not in the earliest manuscripts. That's added later. Okay? That's okay, don't panic about that. It's just how it happened. It's all good, right? I'm not nervous, I hope. So in the modern period, at least when I was at seminary, a long time ago, just after Noah came out of the ark, um, everyone called the Gospels anonymous. And they pointed, you know, Mark is one of the commonest names in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is a big place. There are a lot of people in Rome. What, 50 million? Up to 65? We don't really know. They're kind of guesstimations in the first century. Right. So your people say, well, we have no idea who wrote these. Wow. Well, this is where you've got to start thinking like a genuine historian, I think. Okay. Uh, we're not talking about the number of marks in the Roman Empire. We're talking about the number of marks who follow Jesus. And those numbers are very, very different. Right? It's a guesstimation. But around the time Mark wrote, probably, you know, 60 to 70, maybe Six to 9,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, most of them in the East. Okay. Now, they have ways of doing that stuff that's too complex to, too complex to go through here, but those, and we know their guesstimations. But there's a very limited number of Christians early on. In fact, the Romans hardly notice them. They notice Paul because he's always causing trouble and riots. Hard to ignore him. But the Romans don't really pick up on the Christians till the second century. That's when you start to get Roman authors saying, okay, we've got some problematic people among us. And, and they, they cause a bit of trouble in Rome. Well, of course, you know, there's a big church in Rome very early on. Don't know who founded it, but it's there. Uh, and if you think about it, mid to late first century, can you really imagine a pagan author caring much about Jesus? let alone knowing much, even less writing a biography about him. I mean, who would do that? 
Uh, no, the Gospels, written by Christians, are the only ones who care. Jesus hasn't made anything really of a dent at this point in time. It's starting, but not yet. Now, if you take that, you know, six to 8,000, that's a more conservative number, I guess. Again, again, uh, sorry, again, it's a guesstimation. I'm trying to get my again and guesstimation sword. It doesn't always work. Probably only about 10% of people could read. Now, that number's a bit dicey, but... And probably less than that who could actually write in terms of putting together something. So, you know, you might be able to read Latin, but can you compose a Latin paragraph? Now, it gets a little complex because Paul doesn't write his own letters. Writing is a very specialised task. We learn that at school with paper and pen. That's not antiquity. Writing is very hard and takes a lot of skill and there are specialised people who do it. And you can see, I think, is it in Galatians that Paul writes? This is, or is it Philippians? This is how I write. And that's telling you, at one point in the letter, he's actually written his own name in, meaning he doesn't write the rest of the letter. He's just done that so they can see what's going on. Okay? So that reduces our pool of six to 8,000 people to six to 800. Okay? That's a lot more manageable than 50 million, wouldn't you say? Okay. Now, think about that. In that group of people who can read and write, maybe even up for this, they also have to know enough to be able to write something like this. And not only that, they've got to be educated enough to produce something of this nature. And not only that, in this close-knit Christian community, and it was in the first century, they're all travelling back and forth. They know it's only in the second century that you start to get lots of groups of people outside that circle, and that's where most of your heresies appear. They just seem to blossom like mushrooms in the second century. But in this early period, not so much. You've got to have someone who not only knows their stuff, they're educated enough, and sufficiently highly regarded amongst the leadership to be able to do something like this. Well, then your numbers are dropping precipitously from six to 800 to much, much less. Within that group, who's going to be known as Mark, who has all of this going for them? Okay. So the point is, yep, Mark might have been a common name in an empire of 50 million, but we're not talking about an empire. We're talking about six to 8,000, right? and only a small percentage of that group would be in this position. Now, Here's the other thing. Uh, when Paul writes his letters, he just signs them Paul. Everyone else is going to use three names if you're writing a letter for broader publication or a book, right? You, you use your three names, standard. The only time you use a single name like that is when you're talking to family. Right? And by the way, what's the metaphor Paul uses for the church? We're the family, calls us brothers and sisters. I love that language, by the way. I wish we brought it back. I know it got a little bit legalistic, but... We're brothers and sisters. We're part of this new family. Right? So that tells you, you only need to use the word Paul because everyone knows who he is. Now, if they're putting single names on the Gospels, what's that telling you? We already know the numbers of Mark in the 6 to 800. That's tiny, right? You only need to use Mark because everyone knows who he is. Okay? Mark works. And you think maybe of the, you know, our movement here in Vancouver, there are some pastors, you just have to mention their name and everyone knows who they are, right? Just because of their prominence. So that's the first thing I want to say about who wrote them. Are they anonymous? I don't think so. It's a very limited pool of people. And when you read the New Testament, um, 
who's the guy? They talk about a mark, right? Just the one mark all the way through. It's the same guy, I would argue. Right? Peter comes to his mum's house when he escapes from prison and then Mark spends some time with Paul after they have a bit of a blow-up on Paul's first mission, or second missionary journey. But that gets resolved and then Mark goes to Rome to help Paul. So you've got a guy writing Mark who's been able to sit down and have his Jerusalem Starbucks with Peter and say, tell me again about the day in the boat. And Peter goes, oh, let me tell you about that one. <laughs> and he gets to hear this. Isn't that amazing? The guys you're reading are the guys who knew the people who were there. Right? And Mark's mum knows the women who went to the tomb. Right? Things are just invented out of thin air. No, this is the setting. And they're so natural about it. They don't really say too much because they don't need to. Uh, it's interesting too that if you read Luke carefully, Luke knows a lot of stuff about what goes on in Herod's house that Mark nor Matthew nor Luke um, or John talk about. And then you discover as you read Acts that in the church in Antioch where he comes from, as a guy who's a Christian there who worked as the manager of Herod's household, you go, that's how Luke knows the stuff. They went out for hummus one morning and Luke said, so tell me about what was going on in Herod. Oh, let me tell you about that. Oh boy, did he hit the fan. Right? Okay. So have you ever thought about Gospels being written like this? It's not claw happening over here while you do something, right? It's, it's, these are real people who knew them face-to-face, -face, conversing eyewitness reports. Right, so that's that side of it. Now, the other side is this. Uh, just how did people use books in antiquity? Well, the folks who are likely to have had the earliest copies of a gospel are the people who are likely to be educated, right? Who know how to read. That's a limited number, okay? And books were not cheap, that's true. Neither, neither were they prohibitively expensive, but not, books are not the kind of thing that your average day laborer would buy. But if you read the New Testament carefully, where do they tend to meet? In people's houses. Well, what kind of houses are those? They're going to be the houses of elite patrons who've got room for people so folks can actually meet there. Right? They're the guys who are going to be leading the church and guess who's going to have the money to pay for a gospel? Right? Those elite patrons, they've got lots of money. There's nothing for them to actually get a copy of a gospel. You know, a nice edition of Mark might, might cost five to six denarii, two for a pretty ordinary one. Yeah, that's about a week's work for a a day labourer, but the guys who own these houses in the city that the church meets in, they're not day labourers, right? They've got some money. Okay. Now, these people already have books, and what do you do when you have more than one book? Well, guess what? You put them in shelves. Right? Now, they're all rolled up, of course, right? They're scrolls, right? And uh, they're sitting in these boxes. Do you want to go through the pain of having to unroll a scroll every time you want to find out who wrote it? Do you want to do that? No, and neither did they. Guess what? They put tags on them. The moment you have more than one book, you put a tag on it that tells you the author and what it's about. So if these guys are already, you know, um, wealthy, the first people likely to buy gospels for themselves, they've already got books, they're already in the habit of tagging books, what does that tell me? There was never such a thing as an anonymous copy of the gospel. It's just it was on the tags, not inside the scroll. Right? But when you're reading your printed copy, it's like it's in the scroll. Well, that's not going to help anybody. It's a tag attached to the outside. That's just the practical mechanics of book ownership and storage. Okay. Now, you can just hear that in the context then of this close-knit group of early Christians travelling back and forward, right, and they're connected by an even smaller group of well-known and authoritative itinerant teachers. Okay. 
So in all of that, it just seems to me, of course we expect the author to be well known. Right? And by name. Okay. So, all right. Now, next slide. Eyewitnesses. Ancient authors put a great deal of weight on eyewitness reporting. And so too did the early Christians. How do we know that? Well, this is what's so great about it. I mean, you can tell when people are trying to make a point of something because they emphasise it, right? It's when people just say something almost off the cuff that you realise they're just assuming standard practice. Okay? As Gordon Fee pointed out, it's only because the Corinthians get it wrong that we really know anything about how the early church practised the Lord's Supper. That just tells you it's assumed and you only speak about it when people are mucking it about with it, right? Same thing with gifts of the Spirit. People, oh, you know, only mentioning Corinth. That's because they muck it up. You're not going to argue, oh, you know, the Lord's Supper is only mentioned in Corinthians, therefore the rest of the churches don't practice it. Of course they do. Right? Well, and the same with the gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> Funny how that argument works depending which side of the, you know, the fence you're on. Okay. Um, so the issue here is that you know, they've got to replace Judas and it's just a little verse and they choose two people and what's the requirement for each of those individuals? And when you read it slowly, you go, oh my goodness, stagger me. They had to be with Jesus from the baptism up until the ascension. And you're going, what? I am. You mean there are other people who are with him that whole time and not just the 12? Yep. And the fact that they don't make a big deal about it suggests they're not trying to, you know, play games with you. This is just what you do. And it tells you that eyewitness testimony really, really matters. And it's been argued that's why the Gospels frequently have individuals' names. It's a way of saying if you have the means and the time, you can go talk to them and they'll tell you. You don't find that in myth or legend. Not like that. Well... Grounded in eyewitness testimony. And John says that in 1 John. We've seen, heard, touched and handled. Okay? So you've got a sense then about just how grounded in the life of people these Gospels are. Folks who knew Jesus were with him. Right? And Mark, probably not. But he knows Peter and he knows Paul. Spent time with both of them. That's quite something, isn't it? All right, this raises the last question here, and that's to do with uh, memory, the red line up the top there. Now, um, a lot of work's been done on the role of memory in recent years. Uh, a former student um, actually did his undergrad, I think, at Trinity Western and went on to do some work on this. One of the things that, that people tend to argue is they look at the study of human memory and they say it's actually quite frail. We don't remember as well as we do, partly because as we think about things, try to, we process them unconsciously and try to make them fit what we know. That's usually what happens with memory. It just, we can't help it, it's just being human. You encounter something new, right? And so when, you, when they first come across elephants, they say, oh, what is this? Well, it's a, um, an animal with five legs, one of which it uses as a hand. Right? They haven't got a notion of this trunk yet. That hasn't come about, so they're trying to make sense of it in terms of what they already know. We all do that. It just happens all the time. You can't avoid it, really. Well, for them, this raises enormous problems about whether you can trust the Gospels. I remember sitting at a, attending a conference when a paper on this was given, and you know, there's this kind of, oh, wow, that means you can't trust the Gospels, and they're unreliable, and da-da-da-da. And I go, okay, yeah, hang on. Um, 
But this is what you've got. You really have to watch out for the crowd mentality and exercise some independent thought about how history works, right? So what's one of the first things you know about Jesus in the Gospels? He's a teacher. That stands out, right? Okay. And apparently he's, you know, his stuff, if you just read it, is exceptionally well designed for memorization. Think of all of those one-line zingers that Jesus comes out with that we all know. Why do you do that? Because those little sound bites, as modern politicians know, are really effective. That's what people latch onto. And in fact, that's how most people in the ancient world learn things. There are some 250 short phrases that made up the gold-plated list of little sayings you should remember. Stitch in time saves 20, in my case. Right? Um, all those little phrases that you grew up with when you were younger, okay? well, they have those too. Well, you can see that that's what Jesus is doing. And Jewish education has a tremendous emphasis on memorization. So Jesus has this gift for the pungent and telling one-liner. I don't know if you ever thought of Jesus as a genius. Don't make the mistake of thinking just because he's a carpenter, he's not clever. I've made that mistake many times. Oh, you don't have a doctorate. Hmm? No, you just sit on a tractor with a farmer sometimes and just see how wise farmers can be. It's not about education. There are a lot of educated, not very wise people around. Okay? Uh, mind you, being uneducated is no guarantee of wisdom either, in case you're wondering. Okay? Um, but you don't necessarily equate the two. All of that tells me that Jesus wanted people to remember. That speaks to the question of memory. He wants people to remember. Why would you do that? Well, partly because you realise maybe people don't remember stuff unless you work at it with them. Not only so, he calls disciples to be with him. Okay? Why does he want that? Because he wants them to remember and to understand. Now, what else do you know about Jesus? He travels a lot. Okay? So he doesn't have a web page he can point you to. They don't have access to that. He turns up in the village... He's going to say what he does. How many times do you think Jesus would have said the same thing in three years of travelling around villages? Regularly teaching in their synagogues. It is highly unlikely that Jesus said things just the once. Highly unlikely. And very likely, many times with slight variations depending on the setting. Okay? So scores of times over a three-year ministry, remembering you can read a gospel in just a couple of hours. That's all you're getting out of you know, a thousand days or something. And of course, his followers, they're not just listening to sermons on Sunday morning and then heading off and that's it. No, they're not doing that. They're living and traveling together. And you do get the sense that they're asking Jesus when they don't get stuff that's going on. So, you know, to think about what he's saying is just what humans do. That's one of the things we have, our common humanity, right? You're traveling with the Lord, what did you mean? Add to that his unique authority. Everyone points out Jesus has this staggering personal presence, just really impresses people. From the off, bang, wow, who is this guy? Okay. Constantly astounding people by doing and saying the most striking things, and that's what humans tend to remember. Right? So there's a wonderful Arthur Conan Doyle story about a murder that takes place in London in you know, peak hour in the middle of a busy street. There's, someone's murdered in a house and no one sees anything. Do you know why? because the murderer dressed up as the postman and no one sees the postman. Why not? Because they're there all the time. You see the stuff you don't expect and Jesus is a master at saying and doing unexpected things. Why would you do that? 
if you're not trying to make an impression on people. That's Jesus. Second bit, the guys who write the Gospels are already part of communities. And what are those communities doing? They regularly meet to do what? Celebrate what Jesus said and did. So those words and deeds are being actively passed on, not just by any old Freddy, but by authorised eyewitnesses. They really care about that. Okay. They don't just celebrate, they actually offer devotion to him, and that's staggering. That's one of the things that's really amazing about this, because Jewish people do not offer devotion to anyone but Yahweh. They're singing hymns to Jesus, they're praying to him. They're praying in his name. No one prays in Moses' name. No one sings hymns of worship to Moses. No one does that. That's only for Yahweh. And you hear these Jewish Christians doing this very early on. What happened to cause that? You think someone just invented that out of the blue? Really? Okay. So what I'm saying is you've got to be careful about some of these memory studies because they're usually to do with everyday recollections. But that's not what we're talking about. I remember where I was when the Challenger exploded. Right? It was a Gordon Conwell. Uh, it was in the section where it led from the classrooms to the cafeteria. Everyone was watching the television and we just looked, oh my goodness, the thing just, okay. So we remember that. But how many people now attend the church of the Challenger where we regularly cite the events of the Challenger disaster while offering devotion to the astronauts and praying and singing hymns to the crew. Who does that, right? It's not an analogy. <laughs> In fact, I want to suggest we really have no analogy for someone like Jesus. It's without parallel. So when folks use these memory studies, you know, and um, like, hang on a minute, are we actually talking about the same thing here? <laughs> I don't think we are. All right, now, I think, next slide, what we can have here is indeed a very high level of trust. That these documents from people who knew him best and who apparently regarded him as Israel's Lord among them. Now, we know how Jewish people treated Torah. We know how they treated the copies of the writings of their prophets. Why would they treat the words of Jesus any differently? So you can see that, I think, historically, Okay. Now, um, dang, I was hoping to get to uh, the content, but I think we've already gone time over here. Almost there, not quite. I'm about two pages shy of where I needed to be. So we'll take our break. Um, that's, it is a nice break. No? I'm, I'm being waved on. Okay. Okay, good, good. Finish it. Thank you. Very kind of you. Um, so then. What we're going to do now is actually look at the content of the Gospels, the rest of tonight, which won't be long, and then next time we get together. I'm not really going to discuss the content per se. It's not like we're going to explain what's going on in Matthew. What I'm really asking is, given what we know about the first century world, how do we explain these kinds of things being said about Jesus in these books we can actually see? It's just a straightforward historical question. Given what we know of the first century, given what we know of human beings, how do we explain these stories emerging? Okay. We know what people believed back then. We know the way they operated. How do you explain this story in that context? I've already mentioned one. How in the world do you explain Jewish people who 150 years before withstood the Greek attempt to make them worship a pagan god suddenly turning around and worshipping Jesus as though he's Yahweh? Explain that to me. In the space of a decade, how does that happen? How does that happen? Right? 
What convinced them? And they say it's what we saw and heard and touched and handled that led them to this. Now, I just, not to be too, but I defy you to show me how that could happen by any kind of just straightforward you know, explanation unless the kinds of things you see in the Gospels actually happened. I can't explain this shift to calling Jesus Yahweh in any other way, certainly not within 10 years. Paul writes Thessalonians, opening, I think, still the oldest, earliest book in the New Testament. Paul, writing to these Greeks, actually says, our God and Father and our Yahweh, Jesus Christ. Right there, verse, first sentence, and without any apology or defense. How do you explain that as an historian? You don't have to believe in Yahweh. You can think the Jews are all nuts. It's irrelevant. We're talking about people who are living that way and they believe this. How do you explain them doing it? Okay. Right, now, here we go. Jesus as a teacher. Next slide, please. Thank you. We already talked quite a bit about that. Now, central to Jesus as a teacher was what? The coming kingdom of God, which means basically God's kingship exercised on earth. Now, that would make a lot of sense to Jewish readers. That's what they're looking for. Yahweh is king among his people, reigning from Jerusalem. They've had enough of corrupt human leaders. David failed. A whole bunch of Davidic kings failed. Even Hezekiah in the end kind of didn't work out as best as they'd hoped. That's what they're waiting for. They knew about God's presence. If you study the Exodus, that's what makes them who they are, where God's presence comes from Sinai on the tabernacle and then eventually to Jerusalem in his temple. That presence never came upon the rebuilt temple. No record of it anywhere. But that's what defines them, having the presence of God among them. And they're still waiting for that in the middle of this idolatrous Roman occupation. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, that's going to resonate. Okay? And no, we're not talking about kingdom car wash. You haven't seen that? Okay, um, good. There are some places where that happens. Um, and that's not a way of referring to baptism, by the way. The problem is, if you look at Jesus' version of the kingdom, it's not at all what they're expecting. We've already talked about this. Every other Jewish leader we know of in the first century who's trying to reform Israel, what are they doing? They call them back to a more rigorous reading of the Torah. The Essenes of Qumran are the most extreme. Leave everything and come with us into the desert because the desert is where God first called Israel and we're waiting for his presence. But boy, they thought the Pharisees were lover, lovers of soft things. Right? So here are people who think the Pharisees go easy. Whoa, boy, imagine what they must have been like. The Pharisees, okay? fastidiously instituting a vast web of extra regulations to build a fence around the law. That's what it looks like. Why are they doing that? Because they don't want to go into exile again. They build this enormous fence to protect them, right? Which, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem, even the temple, terrible, don't want to do that again. And Malachi 3 had talked about a messenger coming and they're thinking, we're going to help that. We're going to prepare the way for the Lord by calling people back to Torah, that they'll walk in the ways of Moses. Torah obedience was the key to seeing the Romans removed and their Messiah arrive. And you do understand this is not pettifogging pedantism. These people are really serious about God, probably far more serious than most of us. Sorry, not to be too provocative. We often see the Pharisees as just, you know, pains in the nether regions, but they do this because they're actually deeply devoted to Yahweh. And I think sometimes our politicians will never get movements like ISIS or the rise of Islamic you know, 
to use their word fundamentalism, will never get that until we understand their deep, deep devotion to their God that would just puts most of us in the shade. I have friends in Finland who are seeing more and more Muslims becoming Christians and the comment they make to me is, you, you can't believe how committed these people are compared to us. When they sign up, boy, have they signed up. And uh, you know, you've got to hear that then as uh, the context in which Jesus is doing his thing. And is Jesus, he's nothing like that. Where does Jesus ever attack the Romans? You don't see him doing any kind of leading a revolt against them, nothing like that whatsoever. That in itself would raise an eyebrow. How can you possibly talk about the kingdom of God and not have something to say about the Romans? Because they're idolaters. Why aren't you talking about that? What about Sabbath? That's what defined being a Jew. They're known the world over. Every seventh day they have a feast, they do no work. And what does Jesus do? There's a guy in the synagogue with a withered arm. Right? And he, Jesus calls him up. That's a really provocative act because he knows guys are looking for a chance to accuse him. Calls the guy up, right? Remember the story? His opponents are already bristling. They're going for him because some other things he said. They say, you can't work on the Sabbath. You can save life, but you cannot heal. And Jesus, in their face, heals this guy. And then he has a question for them. Who told you to separate doing good from giving life? Now, we might miss that, but that's actually the summary of the climax of Deuteronomy. And what he's saying to them is, if you read Moses, saving life and doing good are all part of observing Torah. What gives you the right to separate what God has put together? That's why there's stunned silence from their end. He's nailed them. Right? Now, who does that? That kind of thing is entirely without parallel. Where did the gospel writers get that idea from? Did they just kind of pluck that out of the air? Where did that come from? Then the wheat field. Know that story? Disciples are nibbling and up from behind the wheat sheaves leave what? The Sabbath police. You can't do that, right? And Jesus' response again is strikingly unprecedented. You don't see anything like this in watching the time. So you know, he says, well, hang on a minute. David's your hero, right? And his messianic son is the one you're waiting for. Is that true? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, good. And what does he do, your hero? He goes and eats priestly food that's forbidden to anyone except the high or the priests, right? And he does it simply because he has need and the high priest facilitates it. <laughs> Whoa, how do you respond to that? So who the heck are you to criticise my disciples nibbling bits of corn? Nobody argues that in the first century. Where does that come from? Should we be actually worshipping Mark? Did he invent this? I don't think so. Then he goes and says, Sabbath is made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Being made in God's image trumps everything else. No one makes that kind of argument. And his understanding of David, it's just without parallel anywhere else. Imagine a gospel writer inventing this stuff. And you know, no, of course not. No one seriously doubts in my field that Jesus said something like this. It's just, it's the kind of bizarre thing that Jesus does. It's characteristic of him. Right? It's hard to explain the divisiveness that Jesus caused and the hostility he engendered unless he was seriously provocative. 
And you have to ask where that stuff comes from because it doesn't map onto what all the other rabbis were doing. Even more staggering. We're almost there for the last slide, not quite yet. So talked about Sabbath, now we're coming to forgiving of sins. You know the paralyzed man? In Mark, it's the first kind of mighty deed story that, Jesus, that Mark tells you um, that actually gets response where the, the leaders are watching him. And what does he choose to say to the guy? Your sins are forgiven you, as if he didn't know what kind of nuke he was dropping when he said that. Right? And their response is, what? Only God can say that. Now, they don't articulate it, and the very next thing Jesus does is, oh, I can read your thoughts. Well, in the scripture, who does that? Only Yahweh reads your thoughts, not Satan. Satan can't read what you're thinking. He can't do that. Only God knows what goes on in the human heart. So not he's just forgiven sins, and they're saying, Jesus, I know what you're thinking. Da-da-da, let me tell you. Whoa, right? So there's two for the price of one. Can I suggest, what first century Jew would ever say that? The whole Levitical temple system is based on if you want your sins, you've got to go up there to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice. And this guy just says straight off, no, your sins are forgiven. Then the guy gets up and walks. Where does that come from? How does that map onto first century Jewish thinking? Who the heck does Jesus think he is? And lastly now, a few more minutes and we are done. The Sermon on the Mount, you're all familiar with that. It's one of you know, the reasons Matthew's so popular. Wonderful thematic grouping of stuff and people love it. Brilliant. You know the Beatitudes. But I know what I often missed was the mind-boggling nature of what follows the Beatitudes. He says several times, you've heard it said, and then he quotes Torah. And immediately after that, but I say to you. Next slide, please. Can you imagine Moses coming down the mountain to Israel? Well, you know, Yahweh just gave me the Ten Commandments, but I say unto you. <laughs> I mean, you just, what? That's the best. What's that in Aramaic? I don't know. but it's, And I want the O, because that really captures the English sense of total mind-boggledness over where does that come from? This is Yahweh's law given to Israel. It defines them. You can't imagine anything more sacred. Now, they don't have a temple that hasn't been messed about with the Romans, so lots of Jews are uncertain about the first century temple when the Romans are there. But the Torah, that's something else. And it ends up becoming their identity. Absolutely critical. And then Jesus just turns around and says, but I say unto you, this is not a new Moses because Moses would never say stuff like that. Who's the kind of person who says, yeah, you've heard that said, but now I'm saying to you, what kind of person could possibly even imagine themselves being at that level of authority? It's inconceivable. Right? So you see, this is not saying Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah does nothing like that. It's not saying he's son of God. Son of God does nothing like that. Not in Israel's scriptures. Son of God's just a human being in Israel's scriptures. Sorry about that. Right? The only one who gets to, with, to speak with this kind of authority is none other than Yahweh himself. And who was the one who just said, your sins are forgiven? Now you tell me, how would any first century Jew conceivably come up with the idea that this guy from Galilee might somehow have been Yahweh among them? Who's going to come up with that idea? 
That's only just a few points. We're done now, right, for this session. We're going to look at a lot more next week. You start piling these things up. Right? It's not as if there's odd things happening in different places. It's all around this one person in this kind of landscape, this massive amalgamation of stuff that just blows our minds. And I want to suggest to you, it's impossible that that could be invented. It just makes no historical sense. It's beyond their conception. Now, if that's true, do you know what it is you're worshipping? Right? Do you know who it is we've come to? Do you know how pathetic and poor our opinions are in the context of what he has to say? Right? When he speaks, let the word world remain silent. To whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Right? And I've just been trying to do history. Okay, bless you. We short break, maybe, and then we can have some questions or now. Thank you for enduring all of that. It's very kind. Thank you. Yes, why don't we stand? We're going to take a six-minute break and come back just after 8.30. Uh, washrooms, if you need them, are just down the hallway. If you don't know the building in that direction, get a breath of fresh air coming back, and Ricky will speak with Rick for about half an hour with questions. Good stuff. Thanks again for sending in your questions. Ricky's coming now uh, to field some of them here with Rick. And uh, yeah, really appreciate everybody's involvement. It's, it's been great, really great Thank to you. see the questions coming in and the, and the variety of them. So thanks so much. Here you are. Yep. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> that did it. <laughs> I promise to behave. Sorry, guys, my computer was closed, so it's just going to take me a split second to... Boom! All right. So, questions for you, Sir Rick. Sir, wow. Thank you so much for what you shared earlier. I think I could, I could feel the gears turning in the room, which is always it's, right. it's a good thing. Uh, uh, first question I've got for you is just um, a little bit more about perhaps later down the line. So you've, mm -hmm. you've made a bit of an argument about um, the Gospels coming from the first century Christian community, most likely from the people they're attributed to in our Bibles who are members of that community. Yeah. I've got a bit of a question about um, how the Gospels themselves kind of spread from there and how they were eventually collected, right? How, oh. they, how they ended up getting into a collection, bound together, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, that's a great question. It's, uh, given the shortness of time, it might sound like I'm trying to avoid it, but... Uh, it's to do with how you transmit texts. And as the church has a few more shekels, has got more people in it, then they start collecting the Gospels into groups of four. So the four Gospels tend to travel as a group, usually with Matthew at the front, but not always. It can have different orders. Uh, even with Matthew at the front, it can have a different order. Uh, by the time you start thinking about whole Bibles, that's a much more expensive exercise. So it looks like initially uh, when you had these documents, so the, the smallest, well, I shouldn't say the smallest, but there are some copies of Pauline letters in Dublin. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Chester Beatty collection. They're about this big. And there is a tradition where you try to make things for portability. Have you ever seen those tiny, minuscule printed Bibles that are about this big? Ever seen those? That was part of the tradition of you know, trying to keep things portable. So you've got that tradition, and then once you start getting bigger churches, then you're going to start getting much bigger, more carefully reproduced manuscripts. And then those, of course, are much more expensive. Uh, 
but you've got a large church that can support that. I don't know if that's where the question's going, or is it about the canon? Is that what they're yeah, asking? I think it's a little bit more to do with the canon, so I think okay, maybe yeah. riffing off, it's not on, oh yeah. Riffing off what you were just saying, oh, okay, I think yep. their question might have been a little bit more along the lines, okay, so if they got into a group of four, how did they get into a group of four in the first yeah. place? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, this, okay. Uh, for me, start with thinking of Jesus as a Jewish person. And he chooses 12 and he chooses them to be with him and teaches them and talks to him. And by the time that's actually written down for us, the early Christians are already worshipping him as Yahweh. So I would say, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, in, you know, that would be my Yahweh and my Elohim. So Yahweh, as you know, is the great name of the book of the Exodus, okay? So um, against that background, you might ask in Jewish tradition, what gives Moses his unique authority? Because his books are right at the front of the whole deal. And the answer is, Israel heard Yahweh speak to him. Apparently just the once. It was more than enough. That was it, right? Um, okay, we heard you. It scares the living daylights out of us. No more, please. But that's why that happened, so that Israel trusted Yahweh, knowing that he spoke to Moses. And that's what marks the prophets off, right? They've stood in what they call the council of the Lord. He's spoken to them. So at no point in Israel's history does Moses' authority ever derive from a Jewish council who sits down and says, should this be in our canon or not? It doesn't work like that. Okay. You notice that God doesn't speak authoritatively through councils. If you look at Israel's history, it's always to individuals. Uh, and they're attested to in certain ways. So that, that's the basic Jewish framework. So they're worshipping Jesus as Lord. What does that make the 12? They've actually had the Lord speaking to them in ways that Moses had. Moses spoke to Yahweh face to face as with a friend. That's what the 12 has. Right? And I think you see that later on the early church when they're starting to talk about, okay, let's formalise the list. First criteria, must be related to someone who's an apostle, meaning someone whom the Lord had called face to face. So um, why they start to do, or let's start early on. So I think uh, with Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, there's no evidence anywhere that anyone ever questioned their authority. They appear on the scene and they immediately carry weight. And we don't hear of any debates around that. It's just they automatically carry weight. And even when the, you know, the larger church, later church begins to think about what makes it into the collection, there's never debate about those books or Paul. They're just in. And the reason is they carry their own authority. So I think this is really important to recognise the church did not create the canon, it recognised the canon. And that's a very different thing. You'll sometimes hear people saying, oh, the church created the canon, I'll say not at all. It was these authoritative texts that created the church. They're the ones that have authority over you and the church only becomes the church when it submits to that. So you've got to be careful about that canonical process. And, you know, there's other things involved in that as well because some people want to say, well, church traditions have the same weight as scripture and I don't hold that view at all. Uh, there are some things where Jesus takes on the Pharisees because they try to do that with their tradition. But no, I think it starts with they have their authority. It's already inherent in what they're doing. And nowhere do any of the New Testament writers appeal to, oh, there's a church body that said you should listen to me because I'm authoritative. They don't ever do that. They just write with that authority. And what is it? They have seen the Lord, which none of us, we've not had that experience. No church council, no church father, no one after that ever had that deep 
personal encounter with God himself among us. You know, we talk a lot about the incarnation, but somehow we don't take that as seriously as we should when it comes to authority. Oh, no, we've got the spirit. I've got the same authority. No, you don't. Right? You've had to have that unique call. And there's only, you know, the 12, Judas blows it, and Paul that has that. Yeah, Does so that help a little? I think so. I think, you know, just to maybe make it a little clearer. So oh, what happens sorry. is, no, no, this is fine. The, what happens is, is that um, these people, um, you've argued that Mark uses Peter as a source. That gives Mark authority. The church starts using Mark where, wherever it first ended up, and they recognize that authority, so they copy and distribute it to other churches, and they end up copying and distributing yeah. other gospels along with it, yeah. and, and so on and so forth with can Paul's I, letters. Yeah, can I just slightly yeah. rephrase this, yeah. if I may? Um, so, you know, Mark's got this particular view. We had a series on Mark years ago here at Living Waters, and one of the things he talked about was this pattern of a new exodus based on Isaiah. So, of course, they're Jews. One exodus, second exodus. Makes perfect sense, right? So Mark's telling a story about Jesus and it's stuff he's got from Peter. So who actually thought of the gospel as this fulfilment of Israel's new exodus hopes? Was it Mark or was it Peter? Now, if it's Mark, then you've got Peter wandering around for 20 years saying, I can hardly wait for Mark to write his gospel because then I know what I'm talking about. Okay? Well, the moment you put it like that, who's the one person who gets missed in that equation? It's Jesus. And one of the things that does bother me so often about talking about the Gospels is it's almost like it's these guys, Matthew, Luke and Mark, who are doing the creative thing. I don't think they would have seen it like that at all. Any more than the prophets see themselves as creative figures. That's a much more modern, individualistic, Western thing. Right? I think Peter, what Peter has to say carries weight because he's telling you what Jesus thought. He's Jesus' apostle. This is what Jesus taught. Mark is simply saying, this is what Jesus taught Peter, and I'm telling you what Peter was teaching other people. It carries its weight because it ultimately comes from the Lord himself. That's where the weight resides. Okay? So, you know, if you know me, I can get a little bit kind of curmudgeonly about the text and really paying attention to scripture, and that's the reason why this comes from my Lord. And that's a huge weight to carry, right? Just, I need to treat that with a... And sometimes that gets lost, I think, in some of these discussions because it seems to be much more, you know, I'm not saying you're doing that, but it can sound like it's more driven by humans. No, these guys met the risen Lord and it changed their lives forever. They're not thinking about we're doing our individual thing. They're just, he has possessed them, owned them in that sense, and now they're totally his servants. Does that make any sense to you? Is that helping a little? Yeah, I think so. We'll, we'll move on sorry, from it, but I think, yeah, that. from there... Pardon the passion, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> they accepted the authority. Yeah. It was used in churches. Yeah. The churches copied and distributed it. And yeah. yep. by the time, that collection got bigger and bigger and bigger until, you know, the process of recognizing the canon for its authority had happened. Yeah. We'll, we'll move on from this. Yeah, sure. We've okay. got more questions, right? Another time. Yeah, but okay. if you ask the question, give Rick a, a tap on the shoulder. Um, so a follow-up. So these Gospels are structured as Roman, Greco-Roman biographies sure. written based on eyewitness testimonies. So how does the inspiration of the Holy Spirit fit into yeah. the crafting of it? I think you've yeah. touched on that a lot with oh, what okay. you just said yeah. about Jesus, but okay. just So, I mean, um, have you ever... Uh, okay, well, we're Pentecostal. So when you speak in tongues, are you moving your mouth and your tongue? Right? Or do you feel some hand come and go... Oh. Do you know that? Um, no, it's, it's the spirit within you. You see, we don't live in a Greek world where the body's the problem. That's so much of the Western tradition. 
you know, the whole battle between the body and the soul, we've, it's really got into us. Israel doesn't have that perspective. You can't be human without a body. That's why you're going to have it when you're resurrected. So for them to have the spirit working through human agency, that's not a problem for them. That's how it should be. In fact, to be made in you know, the image of God is language that comes from images of the gods in the temple. And Israel says, no, they're not the images of God. Every human being is. And those images were designed to be indwelt by the spirit of that God, whether Marduk or whatever, Amon Ray. Or... But in the scriptures, we are indwelt by that spirit. And that's what enables us truly to become the living image of God upon the earth. So they don't have that tension between, oh, it's got to be the spirit and not me. No, 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 no. It's you and the spirit at the same time. That's, that's integration. That's wholeness. So, um, and you might have even had that sometimes. I've had moments when I've just, a thought's come into my mind and I've shared it and wow, it was from the Holy Spirit. I had no idea. And I think, if I can say this, when I first became a you know, Pentecostal, we lived, I grew up with this kind of two areas of operation, kind of the being human and the spiritual thing. And what I've realised, I think, over years is that that's actually not how it's meant to be. It's meant to be like this. So that sometimes without even knowing it, the Holy Spirit's doing powerful things through us. And I want to suggest that's the most natural form of being human there is. To not be indwelt by God's Spirit is actually to be subhuman from a biblical point. Now, okay, please don't read into that any doctrines about what that looks like. I'm just saying from a biblical point of view, we're designed to be indwelt by God's Spirit. It doesn't live with that tension of human activity and divine activity in that way. So, so the, uh, the popular image of Paul with the dove on his shoulder and his hand being animated by the spirit the entire time as he's writing is not exactly... I'm not sure I yeah, yeah. affirm that one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, sure. Fair but this cool. is just my opinion. Cool, so, cool, cool. You know. um, Another one along similar lines. Has your understanding uh, of the concept divinely inspired inerrant word of God changed over the course of your life? If mm -hmm. so, describe how it has. So again, I think I grew up with just, uh, how do I, oh my goodness, there's just so much kind of background and history to this, how do I have to say this? It has changed in that, uh, these guys have authority because they knew Jesus. That's what that authority is grounded in. But he also promised them his spirit. That's John's gospel, right? Now, if you read Mark, you think, who's going to trust these guys with teaching the church, right? You read Mark? <laughs> they don't do so well. Um, but what you get in John is Jesus says to them at that last supper, and Judas is gone by this time, so it's just as far as we know the 11. I don't know there are any others in the room at the time. And Jesus says, you know, the comfort will come and he'll lead you into all truth and he'll remind you. Now, I think he really means that. He can't remind me because I wasn't there, but they were there with him. And if you go back and read John, there are often statements like they didn't get it then, but later on they remembered and the Spirit guides them. That's what they were promised. I've not been promised that. So when people say the Spirit leads the church, I'm going, I'm not sure that's what that text means in John. I think what that text is saying is the disciples who were with him that he called who hadn't got this, and a lot of it was totally confused, he promises them, you'll get the spirit and he will lead you into all truth. And that's why their texts carry the authority they do. Okay? That can't be me. I wasn't one of the 12. I wasn't with him all that time. I'm not in that same category that John's speaking of. So that's where inspiration and authority comes from. Right? 
the actual mechanics, I have no idea. And, and Jewish people are not fussed about it. It's only you know, in the later second and third century that people start arguing, how can Jews be fully God and fully man? No Jewish person who wrote the New Testament ever fussed over that. It's, they're just not concerned about those kinds of issues. So I think similarly here, right? Um, I don't know how that works, but I do know it's there. They were with him and they speak with that authority. And uh, if I want to be part of that, people of God, I have to listen to them very carefully. Yeah, so I think you, you've touched on divinely inspired. Um, what, what, a little bit maybe more about inerrant. Oh. Like, what about that word? How do you feel yeah. about that word? What does I don't that know mean? That, like, has, that, has your opinion inherent. of that changed? Yeah, uh, well, when I say it changed, I went to a seminary where they had some debates about what that meant and there were different sides. And I'd come as an engineer, so I didn't really have any prehistory in that, I don't think. But I was blessed to have good teachers and it's, uh, this carries its weight because they stand behind these formal documents. So if you want to say inherent, it has that weight because of who these people are and what they're doing. Right? If that's, yeah. yeah the, the inherent is not language I'd normally use, um, yeah. personally. But. Um, Last week you mentioned that early Christians didn't think they were practicing a religion. Could mm. you elaborate on that a little yeah, bit more? Yeah. What did they think they were doing? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, religio, and as far as I understand it from people who are classicists, it's, we get religion from that, from that Latin word, religio, and religio is to do with scruple. It's uh, not walking under a ladder. So most of these things are practices that you engage in to avoid getting hammered by the gods. They're avoidance strategies. That's what religio means. That's not what, that's not what early Christians are not doing that. Uh, as a friend who's a, well, sorry, another scholar that I know, he says actually it's a grammar of life. Christianity is not a religio. It's not avoidance techniques that you inherited from your forebears that you all do. It's actually about a radically changed way of living in the world. And that's why I just, when I talk to people and they, you know, debate or something, discussion, and I'll say religion, I'll say, oh, you want to be a little careful about using that in the first century because um, that's not what the early Christians are doing. This is a very different thing. And it's another talk, but I've said this several times, you can't live in the modern world without actually accepting the fact that the gospel won because the foundational view of the world that modernity has, atheists included, is uniquely Christian. It doesn't come from anywhere else. You didn't get it from the Greeks. It's much bigger than something you just do on a Sunday. The gospel has won, actually. If you want to just be pragmatic, it's won. And that's where you have an iPhone and Boeing 787s and so much of the modern world, it's only because of uniquely gospel values. Right, so there you're drawing a comparison between the Greco-Roman approach to religion mm. as yeah. avoiding God yeah. avoidance through practices and saying yeah. that for the first century Christians yeah. and for those who followed Jesus, yeah. it was about this radically, re radically reshaping the way that they saw life, yeah. the world, the universe, and, and, and everything. Thank you for that. And I should probably add that no one in the Roman world thought that religion was something you just did on the side. Uh, you were Roman and you worshipped your ancestral gods just like you ate your pasta. And if you were Greek, you ate feta and you did it in the presence of Dionysus. That's, just, that's what it meant to be Greek or Jewish or Roman. We're very odd in our world where we think religion is something separate from who you are. No one believed that in antiquity. 
And that's why the early Christians really got into trouble, actually. It wasn't because they worshipped Jesus. Worshipping Jesus just made you a laughingstock. Why would you worship someone like that who dies on a cross? Where you got political pressure was because, and uh, what's his name? Galerian says this. So he's the one that really launched this terrible persecution toward the end. He finally gave up when he realised he couldn't change things. And he tells us what the real problem is. The Christians made laws for themselves. Right? Now that's a view from someone outside it and they're saying the Christians are not keeping the traditions of their Roman forebears or their Greek forebears or their Jewish forebears. They're doing something new and that is utterly intolerable. You cannot do that. And that's what got them killed. Right? Now you might find some of that when you take a different view on, say, sexual practice. You're going to meet exactly the same kind of hostility. Now you understand why people are being hostile. It's not because you worship Jesus so much. A lot of people kind of like Jesus. But when you take a stance that runs against the grain of what everyone else in the culture accepts, that's when you'll get slapped down. And that's what was happening to the early Christians. Yeah, so Does that a, help a little bit? It's kind of a different way of thinking, maybe? Yeah, yeah I think well, you, you're kind of making it cut both ways in some sense. You're saying that, okay, in some ways what they're doing is not religious compared to their culture, but in another yeah. way you're saying, well, there, there was no religious, there was just yep. life, right? Yeah. Everything yeah. fell under this category. And so, yeah. you know, sexual practices today yeah. are, in a sense, a religious belief, just as yeah. much as what we believe in how it affects the way we interact with those things is a religious belief. It's just a part of it's Canadian just, identity to hold yeah. these kinds of views, right, and disagree and see what happens to you. Yeah. And you'll be accused, I think, even these days on a whole range of issues of being haters of humanity. Christians are hateful. That's exactly what the pagans accuse Christians of being. Because you wouldn't worship the pagan gods. We're called haters of humanity. Okay. Uh, that's what you signed up for, folks. But of course, as was pointed out this morning, the thing is, we're known for our love for one another. We're not. And the early Christians ended up winning. But they didn't do it through armies or huge television stations or anything like that. They just worked on loving their neighbours. Took a while, but in the end, the emperor actually bowed to our risen Lord. Sorry, other questions. Yeah, right on. Um, one a little bit related, maybe you could just go a little more in depth, asking about the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Was it this one-time event of teaching or did Jesus say these things all the time? Like, how did, how did that? Yeah. Well, it's probably an event called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Luke seems to have one that's called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, and uh, it, we just don't know because the nature of these documents is what they are. They, they're not telling us everything and they can't. And we know that they're schematized. We know that. Right? They're being highly selective. And, and so did Jesus at some point teach on a mountain? I don't doubt it for a minute. Did he teach similar stuff like that in other places? Why not? Right? Uh, might the Sermon on the Mount be an amalgam of a bunch of things that Jesus taught? Right? You know, Matthew's got one shot to do this. And by the way, he chooses to do it on a mountain. You're a Jew. Where have you heard someone teach about what really matters on a mountain? Right? But notice the difference because Mount Sinai, there's a fence around the bottom. No making whoopee for three days. Sorry about that, right? Put on your best clothes, look great, and only a handful of elite get to go up the top. Uh, there's no fence around the mountain when Jesus preaches and everyone gets to go up. And what you get instead of threats and warnings are congratulations. And how does it begin? Anyone in this group who knows they can't live this, stick your hand up. Right? 
Anyone here who's poor in spirit, stick your hand up. Congratulations, this is for you. Now that is so different from many rabbis' views of Torah. Where did that come from? Right, so, so. Yeah, I think something that's really interesting about that point that you've made a few times that is helpful, I think, for everybody to know is the assumption that, that there was a wealth of material available to the writers of the Gospels mm-hmm. and to the, right, yeah. you know, the apostles yeah. that stood behind them. So when we are interpreting, when we are reading, yeah. you want to take the time yeah. to, as you've just done, well, why a mountain? Yeah. Why are we getting a description of this? If you've yeah. only got a thousand, you know, I wrote yeah. essays for you. I, I, I yeah. only had 2,500 words, right? Yeah. So you choose those words very, very carefully. You did, and you right? did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I think that's maybe just a point to draw out from yeah. what you just said. Like, there's a wealth of material available to them. So whatever they're choosing, they're choosing extremely carefully, yeah. right? And so knowing that, yeah, it might be amalgamation of a bunch of different teachings or whatever, but, but pay attention, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, um, last one, and I think you've, you've answered it a few times already, but we're coming close to time, and it's okay. kind of been the theme. You know, if Mark's so nuanced and brilliant, and Peter stands behind it, but Peter's a backwater fisherman, mm-hmm. right? Is there something else going on then yeah, behind yeah. this structure, which I think you've already mentioned, but yeah, you get yeah. to say it one more time. Yeah, well, I, I think um, he's a... Well, I have never been with Yahweh among us in Jesus for three years, not even for a second. I've experienced the Holy Spirit, but I've not had that. Who knows what the impact of that would be on someone's life? Uh, I've heard this argument. People say, oh, you know, John, he's just a fisherman. What would he know about this? But hang on, he probably doesn't write his gospel until the 90s. He's had 60 years of marinating in this. Why should I think that John just stood still? We really don't know what happened in between those times. We don't know how much Jesus' impact on their life propelled these guys to grow in ways. Now, you know, there's a whole bunch of the disciples we never hear about. They don't write Gospels. You don't know what happens to them. So, you know, Jesus obviously chose Peter for a reason. And I don't think because he was useless. We know he chose Judas. He said, I'm not chosen one of you is a devil. He knew that, right? But I don't think Jesus just chose a whole bunch of people who had nothing to offer. Yeah. And Peter's a figure. I mean, he stands up and he leads the 12, right? That, that's, he's always mentioned at the front of the 12 every time. There's a reason for that. The guy's got something going for him. And what I love about Peter is um, he just, he's all in. So he won't let Jesus wash his feet because that is just too demeaning beyond words. Nobody in antiquity would tolerate that. He's speaking for the rest of them. It's not just him. Lord, you can't do that. No, no, no. That's not what lordship means. And then Jesus says, well, mate, we've had three years together. It's been great. But if you don't let me wash your feet, we're done. That's it. It's all gone. And what's his response? Chuck me in the bath. I'll take the lot, right? (laughs) I love that about that guy. I wish I was like that. I wish I was as full on when, you know, I don't mind making the blunder, but when the Lord rebukes me to have a guy like Peter that says, Oh, Lord, do the lot. I love that about that guy. Well, someone who's like that, I mean, who knows where that's going to take them? You know, and those disciples think about this and they, they yeah, it's, don't think that these guys, by the time they're writing this stuff, are just bumpkins. I've sat with too many farmers, to go back to that again, on tractors to know you don't need an education to have some clues. You don't need a formal education. And some of them may have actually gone on and had a bit more education as they talk to people, right? They learn some things as they go. So, 
I just be careful about saying, how can an uneducated fisherman do this? You don't know. I don't know what he was like when he starts talking to Mark about this stuff. Right on. Well, I think that's our, that's our time. It's 9 o'clock. Well, bless you for coming. Thank you so much. And can I just say to you, um, before you go, just uh, if this is true, folks, and we haven't even scratched the surface yet, if this is true, there is no other game in the entire universe. This is it. This is worth giving your life for. Okay. If this is true. Wow. Okay. And none of us earned the right to be a part of it. It's gift. So just encourage you to go in peace. Lord, watch over these people. Keep them safe. We pray that your Holy Spirit will come upon them and form Christ in them. Our hope of glory and the world's hope of salvation. In Jesus' strong and mighty name we ask. Amen. Go in peace. Go in peace. <laughs>